this is not rocket science in terms of how do we keep neighborhoods safe? Like my point in the USA Today piece was that Vermonters aren't safe. I wasn't safe. A lot of communities of color aren't safe. What is the legislature going to do to ensure that everyone is safe? Because we're not. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. An extremist movement led by angry and entitled white men is spreading throughout the country, and Vermont is providing fertile ground for their violent hatred. That's the contention of Michael Shank, a resident of Brandon, Vermont, who says that he is moving in order to escape armed white extremists who have been harassing him and been tolerated by local authorities. Shank made his case in a recent op-ed article for USA Today. Today on the Vermont Conversation, Michael Shank talks about the racism and extremism that has pushed him and others out of their communities. Shank has also worked in Afghanistan as a senior policy advisor to former Congressman Mike Honda from California, and he discusses what led to the Taliban retaking their country. Michael Shank is communications director for the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. He's also adjunct faculty at New York University's Center for Global Affairs. Michael Shank, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. David, thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. Let's talk about your op-ed in USA Today, in which you write, quote, there's a movement metastasizing across America It's well-armed, it's extreme, and it's led largely by white men. They're enraged, they're feeling entitled, and they're taking ground wherever it's given. It's everywhere. It's even in Vermont where I live, which some people mistakenly consider a progressive haven. It's bullied countless people of color in Vermont who had to flee their communities because it became increasingly hostile and unsafe for them, and now it's pushing me out too. Talk about your experiences and what led you to write this. So I moved to Vermont four years ago, and I built an animal sanctuary in Brandon. My intent was to rescue animals, and I rescued horses and cows, sheep, goats, pigs, dogs, ducks. And it became an informal animal sanctuary, and this was my intended retirement. I assumed this would be my forever home. I was working remotely for a global nonprofit, still am, and found a beautiful property, a beautiful parcel in Vermont. I love Vermont. Vermont is beautiful. And I wanted to move here after working 20 years in cities, big cities, New York City, D.C., Seattle, L.A., and figured I would retire on the farm with my animals and live the good life and Once COVID created a new volatility, and certainly around the election last year, I started to see what was previously nascent become more problematic. And that was this. You know, I have a lot of neighbors on my road who regularly shoot assault weapons, sometimes multiple hours long, sometimes including explosives, tannerite. And pre-COVID, I I felt like there was less of that. Now, once COVID came in and once the election kind of stirred up more anger and more hostility, I saw an uptick in all of that. A lot more use of assault weapons and explosives. And my understanding of that use is that it was legal. These were property rights being 
exercised and I could do little to stop it. Now, why it was a problem for me is I would have kids riding my horses. And when horses hear that level of noise, and this is pretty close to my farm and fields and barns, horses will flee. And what I didn't want to see is a horse fleeing Tannerite or assault weapons use and throwing a kid off the back. I was deeply worried about injury to the kid, to the horse. And so that's when I started pushing for and others pushed for noise ordinance in town, which I can speak to, but I just want to give a pause here. Well, I, I also want to just clarify, um, you mentioned Tannerite. Maybe you could say what that is. And also, you're referring to assault weapons. How do you know what you're hearing um, are assault weapons versus any other kind of weapons? Right. So Tannerite is an explosive that currently can't be used at public shooting ranges. So the state of Vermont has some shooting ranges, ranges and you can't use it there because it's, they've deemed it so problematic. But basically, it's a canister that when you shoot it, it explodes. And I live in a valley and the, the noise ricochets throughout and it creates quite an audible for, you know, miles, an audible sound. People can even hear it on the other side of our mountain range. And so that that is apparently legal to purchase, according to local police, local law enforcement. Uh, you're not supposed to discharge explosives on your property. So that bit is illegal, but it's also hard to measure and monitor. So I recognize that some of what I'm talking about is hard to measure and monitor, certainly when it comes to a noise ordinance, because you would need to install uh, noise capturing devices all throughout the the road to capture some of this assault weapons. I'm distinguishing, you know, a single single shot rifle with semi-automatic that can discharge large capacity at a time. And so some neighbors buying 10,000 rounds at a time uh, because it's cheaper that way, but then also discharging a lot in several hours. So a semi-automatic and a, an assault rifle on AR-15, uh, you, you can tell just by how much is discharged within a minute. Um, and that's the kind of discharge that I'm talking about here. People often say, um, you know, this is Vermont. Just talk to your neighbor. Uh, did you try that? I got that a lot, that recommendation a lot. I also read on that. I wrote a piece for the Rutland Herald uh, on that very subject matter because people were saying, just talk to your neighbor. And I did. So one proposal I made to neighbors that were discharging assault weapons and, and explosives for hours at a time, sometimes three or four hours, I would ask them to send me a text to let me know when that was happening so that I could make sure no kids were riding those horses, that I wasn't riding those horses, or that the horses would be far away from that discharge. And one response I got back was this, that we'll shoot when the spirit moves us, when we want to shoot, and perhaps you should get less sensitive horses. So I tried that with them. Uh, another neighbor was um, someone I didn't feel safe talking to because of the felony past and also how many assault weapons he was bringing to the conversation. So I'm someone who wasn't comfortable bringing an assault weapon to my neighbor to talk with my neighbor because I don't believe in that use of force. And so my problem with the idea of talking to your neighbor, if it's not negotiated by law enforcement, is that it's an asymmetrical power imbalance. The person with the assault weapon has the power in that conversation. Are you, are you saying he was actually bringing weapons to your conversations with him? Uh, 
not I'm not saying that I'm I am saying though that he had them at the ready and I I was not safe in having a conversation with him that should be had by law enforcement or the state legislature should be creating safe environments for all of us to have these conversations. I was not in a safe position to have that conversation. And I think it's irresponsible of town leaders to suggest that neighbors should should just talk with their neighbors who are well-armed, who are not always rational, who sometimes have convicted felon pasts. And these are conversations that need to be had by law enforcement or state legislature needs to be creating safe environments by law so that these conversations can happen safely. This um, escalated to where you write that over the July 4th weekend, you were receiving death threats. Tell us what happened. Well, I want to fill you in on where I left off. So in response to the noises that picked up during COVID and this kind of chorus of assault weapons use on my road, I pushed for a noise ordinance thinking that a noise ordinance would help mitigate or regulate some of that noise. And a lot of people in town rallied around a noise ordinance because there were similar complaints throughout town, whether it was assault weapons or excessive ATV use or mufflers that popped. So there was a lot of a lot of concerns lifted to the town about noise complaints. The town ultimately decided not to pursue a noise ordinance. And so it was punted to next year. I think they'll revisit the conversation at the town meeting next year. But throughout that process in pushing for a noise ordinance, it became clear that I was the leader of that effort, or at least people perceived me to be the leader of that effort. And that led to increased intimidation and threats on my road. So fences were cut, gates were smashed, uh, mailbox posts were obliterated by trucks, garage was shot at, uh, trucks would slow down at my place and then squeal their tires, anything to create noise to intimidate or threaten and some serious acts of vandalism that were reported to the police. So in leading the effort for that noise ordinance, it became clear that people on my road did not want it and were keen to make sure it was clear in my mind uh, that I should not lead this effort, otherwise it might imperil my safety. So that's all the precursor to the death threats. Uh, This is part of an active investigation, these death threats. But what's striking to me is that it required the death threats to trigger law enforcement capacity to disarm those death threats. That all that led up to it, which was active use of assault weapons to intimidate, to threaten, that wasn't sufficient to trigger law enforcement to keep me safe or to keep our community safe or to keep my road safe. It required armed death threats to then trigger the the more recent response to disarm those threats. And so, you know, when I think about next steps and as state legislators call me and talk to me and say, what can we do? This is not, um, this is not rocket science in terms of how do we keep neighborhoods safe? Like my point in the USA Today piece was that Vermonters aren't safe. I wasn't safe. A lot of communities of color aren't safe. And so what what is the legislature going to do to ensure that everyone is safe? Because we're not. So you you write that in states like Vermont, it's easy to be an armed white extremist. 
Why do you make the jump from a dispute with your neighbor to white extremism? Fair question. So there were several displays of what could constitute very easily white extremism or white supremacy that is armed on my road, whether it was Aryan Brotherhood identifiers or White Lives Matter more statements or recent history of hate crime enhancement or racial slurs that were thrown at multiple people on our road, uh, that would clearly constitute in my mind armed white supremacy, armed white extremism. It is not, my road is not Slate Ridge. So people might dismiss it as an anomaly or as unique or, oh, Michael, you just had some bad apples, some bad neighbors. But they're tapping into the national trend that you identified at the top of this piece that I identify in my USA Today piece. They're connecting with this national narrative with the hate and the vitriol and they're mobilizing on it. And so if you think of other stories in Vermont of leaders of color who have had to flee, who have had to move because their communities aren't safe for them, you see also individual actors tapping into that national momentum, hate and vitriol of a more organized armed white supremacist movement, armed white extremist movement. And they're, they're mobilizing locally. And our state legislature hasn't created the laws to keep people safe. And even worse, some of the state bodies like the Vermont State Police are showing a history of, of bias and discrimination, racism against peoples of, people of color. And so imagine being a person of color in Vermont and having the armed white extremism, whether it's an individual actor or a whole community, a militia, mobilizing against you. And who do you call? Who do you turn to? Do you call the state police who have shown a history of bias and discrimination? And explain what you mean by that history of bias. Yeah, so if folks can Google it, everything I say, I try to say with fact and assertion to back it up because I am a professor at NYU too. And I make sure anytime my grad students write something and assert something that they have good data to back it up. So in terms of drivers of color in Vermont, disproportionately more impacted by the state police, pulling them over, arresting them, searching their cars, etc. That's one strong example year after year of racial bias and discrimination in the state police in terms of disproportionate impacts on drivers of color, searches, seizures, stops, etc. But then also a recent case regarding Kaya Morris in Bennington and seeing the bias and discrimination uh, by VSP shown to her. And so these stories, and I think VT Digger did a story on it, these stories keep popping up. And so not only are people unsafe in their communities, uh, white and people of color, and that's, I'm identifying myself there, but they are uh, unsafe in terms of who they turn to for protection. So the, the state law is not protecting them, and then the very people who are supposed to protect them aren't protecting them. So what would have helped you? What should Vermont be doing that it's not doing around this issue? Well, there are a lot of things. A lot of us feel like we're shouting into the void. I know my friends of color feel strongly that they're shouting into the void and that the governor's not responding. Department of Public Safety is not taking this seriously. Attorney General's office not taking this seriously. And so we would like some leadership. Vermont has a leadership problem on this issue. And we want the governor, the Department of Public Safety, the AG's office, we want them to step up and take this seriously. We want the state legislature to take 
this uh, seriously too. And you just look look to the books, and the laws aren't protecting communities now. Some of it's narrative, some of it's talking about the issue, because in Rutland County and in other counties throughout Vermont, you're seeing some of this racism trickle down into conversations with strong vitriolic pushback against equity inclusion policies in the schools, strong vitriolic pushback against curricula that has to do with critical race theory, strong vitriolic pushback to any changes to, ra- uh, to racist mascots at Rutland High School, for example. And we're not seeing statewide leadership on these issues. I'm not seeing the governor talk about, I'm not seeing Department of Public Safety talking about. So we're allowing this extremism to flourish here. We're allowing it to pervade our communities, making people feel unsafe. We're allowing the racism to also metastasize because leaderships, either at the local level or at the state level, aren't talking about it. I mean, there's there's a legal approach here too in terms of the legislature and the role the legislature should take to enable the local law enforcement or DPS to do better in terms of keeping us safe. But there's also a narrative conversation that, you know, I want to see the governor lead on this. I want to see the governor talking about this and no one seems to touch it. Everyone seems to avoid it. So what have you done? Um, I understand you've sold your place in Brandon. Yeah. I'm, I'm selling my place to someone who is fleeing the wildfires in Oregon and considers themselves a climate refugee, a fire refugee. And I've moved north like a lot of my friends of color have done. Uh, similar fleeing of Rutland and Bennington counties because they're unsafe for them. So I'm moving north to Montpelier and I plan to, I plan to drum, drum beat this issue until our communities are safe. And until we see some of this racism, both systemically within the VSP, but also communally and individually as individuals are tapping into this national vitriolic narrative until we see this addressed. And so, yeah, I I feel strongly I'm going to Montpelier and moving there to drumbeat this until we address some of it, until we start to factor in, you know, the Giffords Law Center has talked about what Vermont is missing when it comes to making communities safer. And there's a long list. So when the state legislators call me, if state legislators call me and say, hey, what can we do to make Vermont safer for everyone? It's out there. Again, it's not rocket science. We know what to do. I'm happy to send the law center's recommendations to them, but let's start legislating and make, make our communities safer for folks. Well, just give us an idea of the top one or two things that you're suggesting can be done legislatively. Yeah, so... You know, in, in my case, on my road, you've got one story as a convicted felon who was able to accumulate weapons. And it was very difficult for local law enforcement to disarm a convicted felon until the death threats started rolling out against me and a few other people on my road. And so it required an armed death threat to, dis- to disarm a convicted felon. What Gifford's Law Center talks about, they talk about everything from the fact that Vermont is missing most domestic violence gun laws. So if there's a history of domestic violence, we're going to go in and we're going to disarm that threat. Certainly assault weapons restrictions in terms of where people can carry those assault weapons. As we see more and more threats and intimidations with assault weapons being exercised throughout the state of Vermont, this is going to become really important because Otherwise, people won't feel safe going into the public space. I didn't feel I wasn't safe on my farm because of the of the intimidation that came with assault weapons. 
And so the state could operate there. There's, there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of, and I encourage folks to look up Gifford's Law Center. I mean, it's everything from licensing to waiting periods, um, certain regulations around open carry, anything that ensures that our communities are safe from the kind of assault weapons laden intimidation and threats and bullying. And I want to distinguish this very clearly from neighbors on my road who are armed, who use those weapons for hunting and for self-defense. And they are neighbors that I love and they are good friends. They will always be good friends. And they are law-abiding citizens who have weapons and use those weapons for hunting and self-defense. They do not use those weapons to threaten, to intimidate, to make people unsafe in their homes. And so I just want to distinguish these two very different camps and note that we have a lot of opportunities, low-hanging fruit to make our towns and communities safer for people. I want to uh, pivot here from the war at home to uh, a war uh, in Afghanistan, which you have um, a connection to. You've uh, talk a little bit about your experience uh, in your work in Afghanistan and what you saw there. Yeah, so this is on everyone's mind. And as I was driving today, listening to uh, the radio, everything is Afghanistan all the time. And it's such a tragedy. Let me just name the tragedy that is this moment, because it is tragic for a whole bunch of reasons. And my heart goes out to all my friends in Afghanistan because uh, life is not safe, uh, similar to the feelings and the realities of, of lack of safety in Vermont, uh, Afghanistan is not safe either. I went there under the auspices of a member of Congress that I was working for at the time. I worked in Congress on these issues. I used to work heavily on foreign policy and I've done a lot of work in Afghanistan and Yemen, in Syria, in Iran, in Somalia, in Pakistan. And so even in my USA Today piece, when I call this United States a war zone, I'm saying it from my own experience in Sana, in Mogadishu, in Karachi, in Kabul, because I'm seeing the same unrest, the same vitriol, the same organizing, the same hate, the same armoring of, of extremists. And that's why I use that term. And so Afghanistan has been plagued by a new defense strategy out of the Pentagon, almost every White House. A new White House would come in and they would change strategy. And it was always military centric heavy expenditure on military approaches, military policy, military strategy. At the height of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we were spending $10 billion a month just on weapons, just on, on, on the war effort. Minuscule spending on development, making lives better. So if you think of basic human needs of an Afghan in Kabul or in any of the provinces, we were not spending much money at all one one hundredth, one one thousandth of the expenditure spent on military spending to make lives better, whether it's infrastructure and roads and refrigeration and access to clean water and sanitation, et cetera. We weren't spending on that sufficiently to, one, set up lives for success, communities for success and security and stability, but also as an alternative to Taliban recruitment. I used to write a lot about this. If folks want to see some of my previous writing, just Google my name in Afghanistan, because I wrote a lot on the strategy we should have pursued but didn't, local community development to make lives better so that people weren't recruitable by the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. And, you know, the Taliban would come in after we eradicated poppy crops that were used for drugs. We would eradicate the crops. And then the farmer 
who had a family to feed would not have a job because we've just destroyed their job. And the Taliban would come in and say, hey, you're probably pissed off about this, aren't you? And they would be like, yeah, I am. Like, well, here's a job. Here's a gun. Here's some money to buy food for your family and come, come work for us, come fight for us. So if we want to create stability, we didn't focus on the right thing. And we also didn't give people alternatives so that they would choose our side versus their side. And, and that's, the, that's the long strategy tragedy that the U.S. never got right. You've been uh, tweeting about your frustration watching the media uh, failing to focus on, you know, years of failed policy uh, and instead blaming Afghans for what has happened there. What do you think is the right way to be understanding why we're seeing the scenes that we're seeing right now, which are really unforgettable? They are unforgettable. And to see people hanging on to military planes, U.S. military planes out of the Kabul airport, hungry to get, desperate to get out of the city and out of the country. And that's why I started this, seg this particular segment with an acknowledgement that this is tragic. Let's, let's name that because it is. What I was hearing are Defense Department former and current officials saying that, you know, the Afghan army just didn't stand up, just didn't take it seriously and, and just switch sides. And there was a lot of finger pointing at Afghans. And then there's a lot of finger pointing at Ashraf Ghani, I, who I met with when he was the finance minister in Afghanistan. When I was over there, I had an opportunity to meet with him. And so it's easy to finger point and not do some introspection and reflection and be like, OK, where did we go wrong? And then if there is introspection, retro, uh, reflection on U.S. strategy that's gone wrong, it's just on Biden and the timing of the withdrawal or Trump's withdrawal plans versus a good look at 20 years of military first strategy, military centric strategy that is ineffectual for the reasons I've mentioned. Uh, and again, I encourage people just Google my name and community development councils is just one example of a strategy we should have supported more robustly. Uh, I think it's it's convenient for people to blame Afghan leadership. It, we did it with Iraq. We are doing it with Afghanistan in terms of blaming and finger pointing. Uh, and the withdrawal is just the low hanging fruit, but the, the bigger tragedy is the strategy we employed there. Hmm. Um, before wrapping up, I wanna to touch on one other big area of your professional work, and that is in the climate crisis and sustainability. Uh, you made a, a very neat connection there in mentioning that the person buying your home in Brandon is a climate refugee from the wildfires in Oregon. Um, you have talked about uh, the need for climate reparations. What do you mean by that? Yeah, U.S. Congresswoman Yvette Clark, who is a congresswoman representing Brooklyn, she and I wrote on this piece. And given that industrialized nations like the U.S. and any of the G20, we are responsible for most of the pollutants out there. We industrialized over the last hundred years. We are reaping the gains of that. But the archived emissions, the GHGs, greenhouse gas emissions, out there are ours. Now, coincidentally and deeply unfortunately, those emissions are also creating the climate change that is impacting most countries that have no resources, countries that aren't responsible for those archived emissions, countries that are seeing their whole villages destroyed by sea level rise or flooding or storm surge or drought or heat waves, et cetera. And so 
the poorest of the poor are getting impacted the most from something that rich countries are responsible for. And so if we want to repair the harm done by our industrialized footprint, we need to step up and take care of them. And it's been amazing to see that in the climate finance world, it's been very difficult to get rich countries to pony up for their past and put money down to take care of friends of mine in Bangladesh or in India who are fleeing. Like when I was in Bangladesh two years ago now, the idea that there were climate refugees and people had to move out of Dhaka, I mean, that was just a, a known fact. That wasn't even like shocking news. They're like, oh yeah, people are already migrating. They're getting out. People are leaving. And you're starting to finally see that in the U.S. where people are leaving the South, maybe because they're running out of water. People are leaving the West because of the fires. So the conversation is finally coming to our shores about climate refugees, internally displaced peoples. And hopefully it will raise, in terms of priority, the conversation about helping others around the world who are reeling from the impacts that we cause directly. Well, Michael Shank, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. David, thanks for having me. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.